This episode was made possible by the generous support of listeners like you. For more information, please visit patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. You're listening to The Raven and the Writing Desk, the weekly podcast about the writings of Chris Lester and Liminal Corvid Press. This is episode 182. Greetings, metamorphs, and to those of you in the Northern Hemisphere, happy spring. Welcome back to The Raven and the Writing Desk. I'm your host, Chris Lester. You can learn more about me and my work at chrislester.org and metamorphcity.com. This is the show where I share my fresh new fiction with you and document my steps along the writer's journey. So let's kick things off with this week's story. Today I'm bringing you Chapter 40 of my Metamore City novel, The Lost and the Least. If you're new to the show, go back to Episode 143 to hear this story from the beginning. The following recap will contain spoilers. Metamore City Police Detective Catherine Catane has gathered a diverse group of allies to bring down a sinister cult. There's her partner, Lizzie Moore, a brilliant young missing persons detective from Special Investigations Division, John, an incubus priest from the Church of Hedonism, Callie Linder, a street-level operative specializing in burglary and sabotage, Morgan Drowling, a vampire and medical examiner, and Michael Pirelli, a junior homicide detective from her former post at Precinct 9. Callie, in turn, has her own allies. Evan Salindi, an androgyne fixer and social engineer. Brian Summers, an electrokinetic and electronics expert. Nathan Levy, a computer cracker, sysadmin, and conspiracy theorist, and her boyfriend, Will Karenson, a college student whom she had wanted to keep out of this mess, but who insisted on helping with research into the cult. Kate's old captain, Joe Montgomery, has provided her with a secret weapon against the cult, a file box stuffed with information on the cultist's identities and past activities, collected 23 years ago by Montgomery and his partner, Jacob. Knowing that the cult has infiltrated the highest levels of Metamore society, Kate has brought these files to Kenning Security, the home of Callie's mentor, Silas, and her current base of operations. Kate hopes that with the combined knowledge and expertise of their assembled allies, they can figure out where the cult is currently operating, and shut them down for good. But there has been another crucial development in the case that Kate is unaware of, Callie's boyfriend, Will, has been kidnapped by the cult. Will had gone to Chisholm University to research the cult's history, accompanied by Kate's partner, Lizzie, who is a Chisholm alum. Together, they had uncovered the repeating patterns of the cult's activities, which indirectly led Kate back to Captain Montgomery and his secret files. But Lizzie had left Will at the university when the SID captain summoned her back to headquarters and soon after that, Will was drugged by a security guard and taken away. Unaware of this development, Kate takes Lizzie with her to the meeting at Kenning Security, picking up John along the way. As soon as they arrive, though, Callie triggers a spell in a carved rune tile, trapping Lizzie inside a magical force field. Thanks for bringing her in, kitty cat, Callie says, her face a mask of hatred and rage. Now listen here, you backstabbing bitch. What did your little cultist buddies do with my will?
The Lost and the Least, a novel of Metamore City, written and read by Chris Lester. Chapter 40 Several people started talking at once. Kate, please, I don't know what she... said Lizzie. Callie, what the fuck are you... said Kate. Hey, let's all calm down and think through this, said John. Perhaps you should explain your reasons, said Morgan. Callie grabbed a pistol from the gun safe, pointed it at the ceiling, and fired. It was a large caliber weapon, probably 10 or 12 millimeter high velocity and the sound of the discharge echoed through the loft like an exploding firework. Everyone else stopped and covered their ears. Lizzie looked like someone had set off a flashbang grenade. She fell on her ass inside the force bubble, apparently stunned. Yashua! Kate cursed, rubbing at her ears. What the hell, Callie? Callie gestured with her free hand toward the force bubble. This skag betrayed us, Kate. Her voice was cold fury. Tears streamed freely down her face. She gave will to the cult. That's not true, Lizzie shouted. Kate, I swear by St. Mariah, I don't know what she's talking about. You were the one on the computer, Callie shouted back. You were in their system. As soon as you left, they came and they took Will. How the fuck did they know where to look for him, huh? How did they know where he was? Because you told them. No, Lizzie sobbed. Kate, please, I didn't. Liar! Callie pointed the pistol at Lizzie's head. Lizzie froze. You've known these cultist fucks from day one. You were all in the same fucking club, weren't you? I... Lizzie paused, closed her eyes, and took in a long, deep breath. She held it. One, two, three four, five seconds, then let it out slowly. When she spoke again, her voice was composed. I knew Nevin Adlito. I dated him for a while back in uni. We shared a common room. But I was never a member of the cult. I swear it. Callie put her hands on her hips. Yeah? Prove it. Lizzie stared at her. She took another careful breath, in and out. How do I prove a negative? The tattoo, Callie said. That fucking skull with the key and the arch. These skags all have it somewhere on their body. So show us. Shift back to human. Lizzie swallowed, looked at Kate, then looked back at Callie. All right. If I don't have the tattoo, you'll believe me? For now, Callie said. Get changing, fuzzball. Lizzie closed her eyes again and slowed her breathing even further. She pressed her hands together, palm to palm, like she was praying or meditating. Then, slowly, she began to change. Her tail shortened, then disappeared into the flap in her pants. Her muzzle shortened, then separated, forming into a straight, narrow human nose and a pair of broad lips on an oval face. Her fur withdrew, revealing pale pink skin with a rosy cast, while ear-length auburn hair took its place on her head. Lizzie opened her eyes, 
and they had changed as well, from feline green to an equally striking pale blue. She looked at Callie, her expression steady. Better? It's a start, Callie said. But you're covering a lot of skin, sweetheart. Callie, you are not going to make Lizzie strip in front of all these people, Kate said sharply. Especially not John, damn it. Fine, Callie snapped. Everybody except me and Kate goes downstairs. Make it fast. Obediently, the others took the stairs down to the server room. John was the last to go, squeezing Kate's hand briefly as he left. Kate wasn't sure what to make of that, and his face didn't reveal anything further. When the room was clear, they turned back to Lizzie. All right, Callie said. Show us the goods, lady. We're burning time here. Calmly, methodically, Lizzie removed her blouse, bra, shoes, slacks, and panties. She turned and bent and showed herself from all angles at Callie's direction, like a model posing for an art class. If she was embarrassed, she gave no sign of it. And she did not have the tattoo. Son of a bitch, Callie muttered. Lizzie raised her delicate eyebrows. Do I have your permission to change back then? Callie waved her hand, then spoke a word Kate didn't recognize and broke the spell. The force bubble vanished with a pop of displaced air. Lizzie gathered up her clothes. If I can use your bathroom for a few minutes, I need to pay off this shifting stress. Callie gestured at the door between the kitchenette and the bedroom area. It's over there. Thank you. Calmly, steadily, Lizzie carried her clothes into the bathroom and shut the door behind her. Callie went back to the gun safe, put the pistol back in its case, and closed the door. She twisted the wheel to lock it shut again, then leaned forward, resting her forehead on the cold metal. Kate came up beside her right shoulder, making sure to stay in range of Callie's peripheral vision so she didn't startle her. That wasn't like you, Cal. Callie sighed. Yeah, well, my boyfriend's been kidnapped by a murder cult. She shook her head, and the tears started flowing again. Why is it always my people who get hurt, huh? You fucking topsiders with your stupid power games. But it's always us street rats who pay for it. I know, Kate said. She wanted to reach out to comfort the other woman with a hug or a touch on the shoulder, but it wouldn't be wise or appreciated. People like Callie were wary of being touched without their consent. Instead, she offered more words. It's horrible. There's no excuse for it. Callie nodded, accepting the words, but then she wrapped her arms around herself, a defensive gesture. Will's gonna die. I'm gonna lose him. Like I lost Silas. Like I lose everyone. Hey, Kate said. Don't give up yet. I brought new intel. A contact in the police gave me his files on the old Midnight Snatcher killings. Callie looked up at her, surprised. Yeah? You had a talk with your old captain, huh? Now it was Kate's turn to be surprised. My old captain? He's an old captain, yeah, but I'm not... Stop. Callie put up a hand, palm outward. Just stop. I know, Kate. You're not Kathleen Kittridge, private eye. 
You're Catherine Katane, Magic Affairs Detective. Lizzie Moore is your new partner in SID. I know it all. Kate gaped at her. Did Morgan? No, Callie said, patiently. Kate, I've known for years now. Come on, you think I get close to somebody without checking them out first? What kind of runner do you take me for? Kate let out a surprised laugh. <laughs> okay. Okay. She ran a hand through her hair, looked down at the floor, then back up at Callie. I guess I underestimated how smart you are. Sorry. <sighs> Callie tossed her head. You weren't the first. You won't be the last. How did you know I went to see Montgomery? Kate asked. Callie nodded toward the master computer terminal. As soon as Will sent over those pictures from the library, we started digging into the Midnight Snatcher files. The detectives on the case were Joe Montgomery and Jacob Valenti. Valenti's dead, and I recognized Montgomery's name from my research on you, so, yeah, wasn't hard to figure out. Excuse me, Morgan called from down below. Is everyone alive up there? We're fine, Kate called back. Come on up, folks, we got work to do. She looked back to Callie. Come on, let's get your boyfriend back. As Morgan ascended the stairs to Silas's loft, she carefully took stock of her friends and allies. Kate paced back and forth in front of the table, her eyes on the battered file box. She still wore the pale skin and dark hair of her Kitridge persona, but her eyes were puffy, and her hair looked like she'd been pulling on it again. Morgan could smell a mixture of excitement and dread coming off her. Her shoulders hunched, like she'd been carrying a heavy weight for days, which Morgan supposed she had. Kelly Linder leaned back against the gun safe, trying to look relaxed and failing miserably. Frustrated anger burned off her like a smoking candle, her muscles jumping beneath her skin even as she tried to stand still. She wrapped her arms around herself, and the fingers of her right hand twitched intermittently. That one wants to kill something, Morgan thought. Rather than take a seat back at the table again, Morgan withdrew to the kitchenette, where she leaned back against the counter and surveyed the rest of the group as they came up. John turned his gaze immediately to Kate, his brow creased in unspoken concern. He took a seat at the table closest to where Kate was pacing. The two computer experts, Nathan and Brian, kept their heads together and spoke in low tones about something incomprehensible. They went back over to the master control terminal, where Nathan woke up the machine and started typing and clicking on things. Last came Evan and Michael, the former leaning on the ladder for assistance. The last two days of rest had been helpful, but Evan still wasn't going to be ready for field work anytime soon. Morgan looked around for Kate's new partner, Elizabeth. She was nowhere in sight, but Morgan observed a light under the bathroom door. She took a deep breath and caught the scent of something feline and predatory, wafting from that general direction. All right, people, here's the situation, Kate said. There's a thousand-year-old death cult that's loose and active in our city. They're following orders from some kind of dark god that's outside our reality. They have allies in the nobility, in the government, even in our own police force. The people you can trust are here in this room. 
Kate paused a moment to let that sink in. The others exchanged wary glances at each other. John raised a hand. Can we get just a brief introduction on who everyone is and what they can do? He looked around the room and gestured at himself. Hi, my name is John. I'm an incubus. What I do is self-explanatory. He pointed to Morgan. Morgan Drowling, Morgan said, nodding to the room at large. Medical examiner, noble scion, vampire. Michael stood up. Michael Pirelli, homicide detective. Evan raised a hand, then winced as his arm passed ninety degrees. Evan Salindi. Androgyne, fixer, negotiator, charm offensive. Though I shan't be doing much of that at the moment. The first of the two technicians waved over his shoulder. Brian Summers, electrokinetic and IT guy. Mr. Summers is underselling his virtues, Evan said. He led a team that infiltrated the syndicate's security firm, stole their most precious files, and defeated an enemy fire team while torching the place on their way out. Brian looked uncomfortable. I'm not in that line of work anymore. I have a family to worry about. Kate's expression grew even graver than it was already. I think I can understand that. She turned her attention to the smaller man beside Brian. You? Nathan Levy, said the tech. He didn't look away from the screen, but he gestured toward the server room below. I make this big, beautiful monster sing in key. Linder looked down at the floor a moment before answering. I'm Callie. I steal things and blow shit up. And I'm Kate, Kate said. I do illusions and solve crimes. She paused a moment, then added, And, in the interest of full disclosure, I'm also immune to mind control, which you're all going to be very happy about, because apparently, as of two days ago, I have a direct line to this dark god thingy through my dreams. The room fell into a heavy, stunned silence. You might have mentioned that earlier, darling, Morgan said. It's possible I was in denial, Kate said. The lady in the bathroom is my partner, Lizzie, and she's just gone way beyond the call of duty to prove you can trust her. She looked over at Brian and Nathan. You guys I don't know. What's your deal? Brian shrugged. I hired Callie for that op against the syndicate. We kept in touch. When Mr. Kenning's system went into lockdown, I helped her get it running again. You said you're an electrokinetic. Kate said. You with the Collective? Officially, yes, Brian said. Unofficially, I have some flexibility to do things my own way. I can vouch for that, Evan offered. I'm a friend of the family. Good. The last thing I want to do is spread the word about this to a few thousand telepaths. What about you, Nathan? I'm, uh, in the Collective, Nathan said. But nobody gives a damn about what I do. Low-powered mail. Ah, my condolences, Evan said. Kate looked momentarily confused, then apparently decided it wasn't worth getting an explanation. All right, I've got some new intel on this group, and I need some help making sense of it. Here's what we know so far. While Kate got everyone up to speed, Morgan slid unobtrusively over to the bathroom door. Pitching her voice to a level appropriate for feline hearing, she said, Elizabeth, it's Morgan. May I come in? 
For a moment, there was no answer. Then she heard a soft, high-pitched noise, something like a cat's meow, but more alien, wilder. Taking this as a yes, Morgan opened the door and slipped inside. A large snow leopard lay on the throw rug in the middle of the room, her head resting on her front paws. She looked up at Morgan, her huge green eyes arresting. The tip of her long, fluffy tail twitched once, twice. Paying off your shifting stress, I take it? The leopard sighed. It must be terribly inconvenient, doing this every time you take human form. I can see why most theriomorphs rarely do it. She crossed to the toilet and sat down on the lid. She looked down at the seat, shifted her legs. You know, I forget how uncomfortable commodes are. I haven't had to use one in nearly two years. The leopard made another vocalization, one that vaguely reminded Morgan of a hooting monkey. She wondered what it meant. She reflected on how little she actually knew about big cats. At least the leopard's body language looked friendly. I don't suppose Kate would have told you about my experience when I came back to the department, after I was free of Braddock and everyone knew what I had become. I'm sure you know the prevailing sentiments about vampires in general. Morgan looked down at her hands. Bit of a cold reception, I'm afraid. For two months, Kate and David were the only detectives who would even come to the morgue. Even within forensics, half my junior staff quit. Morgan looked up again. The leopard was watching her, calmly and intently. The tip of the tail flicked again. And there were threats, Morgan continued in a lower tone. Kate doesn't know about those. Anonymous messages on my voicemail. Envelopes filled with garlic powder mailed to my apartment. For the first year, every time there was a vampire killing in our precinct, someone would mail me pictures of the crime scene as if they were saying, Look what your people did. She shook her head, closed her eyes. They knew they couldn't attack me physically. They knew I could break them, both literally and in the courts. So they tried to poison my spirit. Little petty acts of hatred and cruelty. Little reminders of their distrust. A trickle of water on stone to wear me down. To make me quit. Why didn't you? Morgan opened her eyes again. Elizabeth sat on the floor in front of her, back to her usual humanoid form. Her tail still twitched with interest, but her expression looked sad. Because I believed in the work, Morgan said. Because it didn't matter whether they believed me. She hesitated. Actually, that's not true. It mattered a great deal to my happiness and general well-being. That was a hard time, I don't deny it. But the work still needed doing, and I was good at it. And the only way I could ever persuade them was to keep doing it. Elizabeth nodded, staring off into the middle distance. I've never been accused of something like that before, she said quietly. It's disorienting. Like you've been suddenly inserted into someone else's life. Oh yes, Morgan whispered. Elizabeth fell silent for a while. She seemed to be wrestling with something, and Morgan gave her the space to do it. At last she spoke. I'm wondering if... 
part of the reason they were so suspicious of you was because of where you came from. Morgan cocked her head at Elizabeth. Meaning? Well, Elizabeth took a deep breath. Your background is different from most police officers. Your heritage, your education, your speech and manners and bearing. Ah, Morgan said. You're wondering if this is about class. I think perhaps it's part of it, Elizabeth said unhappily. People from disadvantaged backgrounds are prone to be suspicious of us anyway. We've been given so much, and they have so little. It's desperately unfair, and they know it. How much reason do they really need to hate us? Morgan shrugged. I think you'll find the answer varies widely from one individual to the next. In my experience, most people will not hate you for being highborn. But yes, it will put you at one remove from them. And that distance makes everything else more fraught and complicated. Your motives will always be questioned, and never more than when you're just there to help. She leaned in close, focusing her eyes just below Elizabeth's, so she didn't draw the other woman into a hypnotic gaze. You have to bear that, Miss Moore. You have to bear the suspicion and the questions, and, yes, a little guilt. Because that is the price you pay for being aware of the privilege of your position. Elizabeth let out a rueful laugh that was almost a sob. <laughs> I was hoping I could be judged on my own merits as a person. Morgan reached over and squeezed her shoulder. Oh, darling, that's never going to happen. You're never just a person, no matter who you are. Prince or Papa, we all carry around the baggage of our ancestors and their choices. We are prejudiced against one another in a thousand horrible ways. She rose and extended a hand to Elizabeth, helping her to her feet. Fortunately, if you can work your way past that prejudice, most people are also good-hearted and able to learn. Elizabeth nodded thoughtfully. She squeezed Morgan's hand and looked up at her with a grateful smile. Thank you, Dr. Drowling. Oh, tosh. Morgan said, scratching her fur lightly behind one ear. Call me Morgan, darling. I never stand on formality with anyone I've seen naked. Elizabeth's ears lay back, and her whiskers flattened sheepishly. I suppose that's fair. Morgan, then. And that's the end of Chapter 40. Come back next time when Kate and her team put together a plan to rescue Will. Octavia Butler said, Writing is one of the few professions in which you can psychoanalyze yourself, get rid of hostilities and frustrations in public, and get paid for it. So join me here on the couch and let me tell you what's been on my mind. Here's your weekly writing report. I wrote 4,082 words this week, over the course of 4.25 hours, for an average writing speed of 960 words per hour. As of Friday night, I have gone 168 days without breaking my chain. I made good progress this week on my science fiction ghost story romance, The Nearness of You. The story definitely benefited from the time it spent in the drawer. I can clearly see the ending now 
and I've had some insights on how to improve the story that didn't occur to me when I was working on it three years ago. The manuscript is currently just under 10,000 words, and I expect to wrap it up in the next week. Over on the Patreon feed, Carol Foote has delivered our latest piece of bonus art. This one is from Part 3 of To Walk in Shadow, and it shows Jessup, Siong, and Tara facing down some of the monsters of Deep Shadow. That's at patreon.com slash author Chris Lester. It's available to all of my patrons at the $1 level or higher. And there's a preview image at the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. And now, the feedback. Eric from Georgia writes, Just wanted to send quick congratulations on your finishing homecoming. It's been interesting listening to your updates and hearing the change in the way you sounded early on when you were struggling to find something to write, to now, where there is clear excitement in your voice. Always looking forward to the next episode. Eric. Thanks, Eric. It's been quite the transformation on my end, too. I know that I'll have dry spells again, and there will be times when the creativity doesn't flow as it has been lately, but it's a lot more fun to be on this side of things. Thanks for sticking with me when it was hard, and I hope you'll enjoy the results now that I've broken through it. Steve posted the following recommendation on the Fans of Metamore City Facebook group. He says, For those folks who have Netflix, I recommend the first installment of their animation series, Love, Death, and Robots, Sunny's Edge. Sure felt like it was lifted right off street level. Gritty and brutal. Not for the squeamish and most definitely not kid-friendly in any way, shape, or form. Thanks for the recommendation, Steve. You're the second person this week to tell me about Love, Death, and Robots, so I'll have to check that out. In a similar vein, I strongly recommend Netflix's adaptation of Altered Carbon by Richard K. Morgan. This is one of the great pieces of cyberpunk fiction, and folks who enjoy that side of Metamore City will find a lot to like in this adaptation. Again, it's super violent and definitely not for kids, so keep that in mind if you decide to check it out. If you'd like to share your thoughts about the show, send your feedback in text or audio to metamorecityfeedback at gmail.com. To leave a voicemail, dial area code 641-715-3900, then enter extension 255082, followed by the pound sign. My Facebook is facebook.com slash author Chris Lester. The fan group is fans of Metamore City on Facebook. And my Mastodon handle is at author Chris Lester at wandering.shop. If you like this show, take a minute and leave me a review in Apple Podcasts. It makes a big difference in helping people find the show. That's all for this week. I'll be back next time with more fiction, fresh off the writing desk. Until then, keep it on the bright side. This is Chris Lester, signing out. The contents of this podcast are copyright 2018 and 2019 by Chris Lester and the Liminal Corvid Press. The show is released under a Creative Commons, Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives license. So don't change it, don't sell it, but feel free to share it all you like. For more information about this license, please visit creativecommons.org.